if instead of bailing out the financial system, which had caused this crisis, the mortgages had been bailed out, the, the amount of bailout required would have been substantially less in the billions instead of in the trillions. And also the Great Recession, which followed, would have been averted. But this theory was not adopted because it did not favor the interests of the rich. And so what happened in history was that there was this battle of two theories and the theory which won was not the right theory, but the theory which won was the one which was used in uh, conducting policy and therefore that theory prevailed and it shaped the policy response. We try to understand history, we try to shape history by the way of theories. Our theories then shape history and history shapes the theories. So this is the what I call entanglement. Welcome to Activist MNT, a podcast about real-world economics, including modern money theory, and how life changes when you discover it. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. part two of my two-part conversation with Assad Zaman on the 2001 edition of Karl Polanyi's 1944 book, The Great Transformation. This is also the final part in a larger four-part series on the book. Parts one and two are with Jackson Winter. Jackson and I are two smart layperson MMTers trying to come to terms with the depth of what we just read and connecting it to our lives and MMT. Parts three and four are with Professor Zaman, who is a PhD economist with many lectures, papers, and posts on the topic, all of which you can find in the show notes to part one with Professor Zaman. Part one also contains a summary of the book. Even experienced MMTers can't know this stuff. You think you understand the foundation of our economy and society, but you don't. As described in The Great Transformation, there's another foundation beneath it. If you like what you hear, then I hope you might consider becoming a monthly patron of Activist MMT. Patrons have exclusive access to several full-length episodes right now. Patrons also get the opportunity to ask my academic guests questions, including my recent episode with Warren Mosler. They also support the development of my large and growing collection of Learn MMT resources and the course with Professor Zaman. To become a patron, you can start by going to patreon.com slash activist MMT. Every little bit helps a little bit and it all adds up to a lot. Thanks. And now let's get right back to my conversation with Asad Zaman. Enjoy. Uh, one human 
reality and ask what kind of trading system would benefit the masses, we would come up with a radically different type of trade. Um, can you address briefly how mercantilism fits into this? Ah, yes. Mercantilism was an early. Basically, if you look at economic theories, you see that as the system was evol evolving, the theories were co-evolving with the system. So, basically, when we talk about the gold standard for a century, that is just um, um, the mercantilism basically focused on acquiring gold. And, and how can you do that? By selling goods to the other countries. But uh, mercantilism period was a period of where you wanted money to conduct wars, whether it was with other states or whether it was colonizing wars, but you needed gold to pay your soldiers and, and to build your uh, industrial products and to import the things that were essential for um, your industry, like raw materials, etc. So basically, gold was needed for wars. But this uh, war was an expensive way to acquire resources of other countries. And after colonization took place, then uh, you could do that by monetary methods. And today, after the world wars, basically the financial system is able to extract uh, revenue from all of the world without, in, in very peaceful ways. Like, for example, they have entrapped the U.S. Uh, students in a trillion-dollar debt. And so they will be working their jobs and paying off for the corporations, basically, because they, corporations will extract their tithe uh, in terms of the interest payments on the loans that they have been given for the study. Whereas the society itself could have arranged for this education on a cooperative basis simply by reorganizing the structure of rights. If we live in a society where every student is entitled to education as a human right, uh, then um, they wouldn't have to pay for it. I mean, it's the collective responsibility of the society to pay for the education of all the children living in our society. Uh, this simple ideological attitude would uh, change the world. Can you address how mercantilism, although it was not great for group, for for average people, that that at the time and given the context of the world at the time, that mercantilism was an appropriate policy? Yeah, basically, when Adam Smith wrote, mercantilism was the dominant economic theory, and basically, Adam Smith uh, is the transition point from mercantilism to free trade. And uh, before Adam Smith, the nations were competing with each other on uh, the battleground. And so for that, book is about basically the uh, how the states can acquire power. And power involves getting gold and all of the theories, the, the mercantilist theories are basically designed to say uh, practical advice on nations on how to acquire economic power. But e the nature of economic power changed as the uh, system developed. 
and uh, you could get more power by trading with the enemy than by battling them. And so the system, economic system changed in that direction. Okay. Um, all right. My next question, I think, is the least well-formed, but I, but, uh, I think it is certainly enough to get you to um, understand what I'm talking about. Um, okay. Fascism. Fascism is not a powerful movement in and of itself. Rather, it's something that fills in the vacuum caused by the suffering of the self-regulating market. So he talks about closer to close to the end of the book, he talks about maybe it's even in the notes, but he talks about how in history when the suffering was great because of a self-regulating market that that's when fascism rises. And that when yeah. that suffering is reduced, fascism disappears. So fascism is not something in and of itself in a sense but rather something that is just always standing at the ready to fill in the vacuum of the damage caused by the self-regulating market. Yeah, here I, my grasp on history of this uh, phenomena is not very strong. So I, I'm, uh, I just read Bolani on it, and that's uh, all I know. And basically what you have said is, is a good summary that when the reg, uh, self-regulating market causes too much suffering, then a uh, leader emerges who enforces his will on the people and people are ready to march to any tune to save themselves from the suffering of the market. And uh, viewed in this light, uh, USA is ripe for fascism today. And in fact, you can see that in Trump because the suffering caused being uh, caused to the people by the market is just uh, increasing massively and the standards of living have been declining and lives have become more and more miserable over the past um, three decades ever since the reagan thatcher revolution basically uh the labor class has hasn't made any progress while the capitalists have ga captured all of the gains from economic growth so there is a so-called uh, economic puzzle of productivity, that the productivity of laborers has been going up steadily, but their uh, wage has, uh, real wage has remained more or less constant. So people are very puzzled as to how that happens because they don't, uh, in neoclassical, they don't take into account power of the different classes. Mm. Okay, all right, um, so next one. According to Adam Smith, in 1775, man has a natural tendency to barter, to accumulate material things. Essentially, humans have an inherent and internal motivation to be greedy, and that all of society's problems can be solved with more greed, with more stuff. So history reveals that these things are not true. The real motivations for obtaining material wealth is as a tool to increase social standing. But in order to perpetuate this ideology of greed, it requires that we ignore history, any history that happens to show that greed is not natural, that wanting to trade and, and barter is not natural. We, it requires that we denigrate those who aren't greedy as uncivilized and primitive, and these, and these things justify ignoring their history and crushing 
anyone who stands in the way of our greed. And more broadly, um, it justifies cruelty and discrimination against the poor, which is commodification of the poor, requiring a labor market. And Margaret Thatcher's dictum that there is no alternative, Tina, was basically her proclamation that the self-regulating market and that you know, austerity and that we must hurt the poor is unfortunate but necessary and the debate is over. And you pointed out something, or I don't think the book did, but you did, that in Jane Austen novels, <laughs> that the quote, the poor yes. are not the poor. Yes. They're the poorest among the aristocracy, exactly. the ones who are struggling to hold on to their land that have land at all. Exactly. And that those in true poverty are never even mentioned. So that's right. So that death to the actual poor is actual death, but death to those in the Jane Austen, the poor in the Jane Austen novels, is becoming those invisible people, is becoming part of the actual poor, and essentially right. being considered worthless and invisible to the aristocracy. So please. Yes. Um... Jane, um, well, this is not original with me. A lot of people have uh, discussed this aspect of Jane Austen and even her awareness of colonization. But basically, yes, um, even the main struggle between the uh, protagonists, um, who is it? Elizabeth, I think, is the lead. And uh, she is uh, not respectable in the eyes of Darcy initially because their family is poor and she is struggling to maintain that she is equal because we are gentlemen and you are gentlemen and so we have equal status. So, But and even before, beneath her would be just not part of the human beings. They don't have blue blood. I mean, basically that's the, the there is the aristocratic class and the others are non-human beings. And basically if you look at the tale of two st- cities, that's what it starts out with, that an aristocrat is racing through the streets of Paris and his carriage crushes a child. And so he stops and tosses a few gold coins to the family and continues on his merry way. Mm. Mm. And that led to the French Revolution. I mean, that was one of the sparks, I guess. Uh, I mean, it's, it's not that particular, that's a fiction. But that type of thing that uh, plus other igniting factors. Okay. Um, there's actually, uh, I hadn't thought about this until I heard you talk about Jane Austen, but actually a movie that my wife and I really, really like a lot mm-hmm. um, is called Ever After with Drew Barrymore. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've seen that too. Oh, it's wonderful. A, it's a wonderful it's a movie. Cinderella remake. <laughs> yes. Yes, Cinderella. Yes, exactly. Yes. But it, that's exactly what you're what what happens in that movie. They are ah, struggling yes. to hold yes. on to their tiny bit of land, and I never thought. And, and actually, she marries the prince, saving yes. the family. Yes. And, and it's actually I never considered it from that point of view. It's that it is struggling to remain at least, you know, in the aristocracy itself, as a, and avoiding becoming what we currently call, you know, impoverished or you know, real poverty, real poverty. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay. Uh, all right. I'm surprised at how quickly this is going. Um, okay. Well, 
Uh, I mean, I can come up with some specific questions, but before I do, can is there? I mean, you have seven lectures on this. Plus, oh yes, oh, not. Yes. I mean, not just the seven lectures. You also have a summary. You also have the methodology. You also have your yes. your written summary. Um, so yes. let me just let me just open it up to you. Of is there something, you know? Let me just open it up to you. Is is there yeah. another thing that you would like to bring up about this? We have plenty of time. Yeah, sure. Um, there are some things that basically. In uh, the search for knowledge, I found that the idea of Michel Foucault uh, that we need to look at the source of ideas. So basically, um, we are trained, at least in the educational that I received, we were trained to think in terms of true and false. Here is an idea. Who uh, had this idea, why they did have it, is, are not the questions of primary interest. The question of primary interest is, is, is this idea true or is it false? So this is um, a very bad way to um, think about things. And because it's ahistorical, as you know, the, one of the major complaints against neoclassical theory is that it is ahistorical. And um, MMT does attempt to remedy this a little bit, but uh, at least uh, the, 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 in the sense that, well, MMT goes into the institutional structure of money currently, but it does not really discuss the evolution. How did we come to this system? And that, I think, is a defect. And basically, um, looking at the history of ideas is a very powerful means for understanding how we got to where we are. And so, in that sense, any conventional economics um, completely, any not only... Um, not only do they not study history, but they also say that studying history is useless. There's no point in it because what happened in the past is not relevant to learning about truths. And, and that's completely false. So in that sense, history is of extreme importance. Uh, this idea itself is suppressed in conventional approaches to knowledge. And one of the greatest contributions of uh, 20th century was Thomas Kuhn on the structure of scientific revolutions, which basically looked at how science has evolved and then came up with some rather surprising insights about the nature of science. Similarly, if we take... Um, the current system of capitalism as a given and try to understand it, that will lead to some insights. But when we study how this system came into being, that leads to a radically different set of insights because basically you look at the system from the, an external perspective instead of looking at it from the inside. And that really gives you a massive amount of insights which are simply not available to those who are participants in the system. And so that, I think, is the importance of Polanyi. Also, 
Fulani got there first. I mean, if I was to go and look at the history, I would never get to uh, this place where Fulani achieved. I mean, he actually is able to stand outside the streams of history and watch capitalism evolve and convey his insights. So that's really quite brilliant. I mean, uh, it's, it's a lifetime work. And I certainly couldn't have done anything like that. And not, not very many could, even after studying all the history. And in fact, historians today, I know them, they just uh, don't have the perspective that Polanyi said. And Polanyi starts by his book by saying, I'm not a historian. Actually, I'm looking at what, what you might say is meta-history. Not just this happened and that happened, but the why of uh, thing. You, you watch the evolution of institutions subjected to social forces, and you try to you, uh, figure out the dynamics of this process of social change. And in fact, Ibn Khaldun is the first person who did a study of history like this. And so I think that in, in many ways, Polanyi was inspired by Ibn Khaldun because basically Ibn Khaldun sets out the theory as study of process of social change. And this is exactly what Polanyi also says, that I'm going to study how societies change. And notice how this is radically different from the economic co theory concept of equilibrium, which says, which talks about situations where society will not change. And these situations never actually arise, so we're studying a, a dead event. So this idea of history of ideas is extremely important and very unfamiliar for the most part. When you use the word social science, then the word science has the assumption of universal laws valid across time and place and geography and history. And so once you have a universal law, if you have the law of gravity, what has history got to do with? And if something is, if you talk about the World War I and how it happened, well, that was a particular incident. It's, there's no laws to be had. So it's not, it can't be part of science. So once you use the word science, you're dead. Uh, that is, you can never learn anything. And that's, uh, that's a more fundamental problem. So I think that's uh, enough of the cuff remarks. Um, okay, uh, a follow-up with that is, who specifically today don't want history and society and institutions studied? Well, basically, I think this is part of Polanyi's uh, message. He says that the market wants to strip people of their identity, of their history, of their society, and turn them into human resources, sort of interchangeable parts for use in the machine for production. If, if you know your history, then you have a broader sense of who you are and a vision for the future and a perspective on working together collectively for larger goals. All of these things are lost when you don't study history. So capitalism very strongly doesn't want us to focus on history. It wants us to focus on the imaginary. Speaking of uh, movies, I think that Matrix is another one and uh, that, that's actually very, very strongly representative of what is happening to us. We are being trained to live in a fantasy world 
and the reality is that we are just parts producing energy for the capitalist machine. I think that artists have a much better artist and literature people have a much better sense of what the world is moving at a deeper level than the average person uh, can understand or express. Um, okay. Uh, I'd like to do one more, uh, a bigger question and a smaller question, and then let's get to my fi original final question. And that is, uh, I'll give you the small one first. Can you briefly, you, you kind of touched on this by saying, you know, uh, capitalism, whatever, the, the, those that benefit from capitalism don't want you to look at history because it's inconvenient for them. And that Pol you have a paper about Polanyi's methodology, oh, which yeah. is kind of common sense, but it's just basically Polanyi makes it clear or, you know, he, you can't separate history from economics from a whole bunch of things. Can you address that? Oh, yes, yes. This is, I think, crucial. And this is the fatal flaw at the heart of Western social science that uh, they treat the human experience as an external object. You see, in science, we study the world out there and we don't interact with it. I mean, how what I wish to do uh, if I say that the gravity is 9.7 meters per second squared, but I wish it was higher or it was lower, that just doesn't make any sense. But when it comes to history, human beings, our ideas, our visions, our goals shape history. So this is, this, if we want to understand economic theory, then we have to, uh, we have to study this two-way causation, which I call entanglement, um, history, uh, as it happens, affects us. And we want to try to manipulate, we want to try to change things, then we have to understand the historical processes unfolding around us so that we can control them, shape them. We have to understand what are the forces which are driving change. And so to do that, it's, it always requires going beyond X happened and then Y happened. You have to guess at the hidden causes which are driving things. And those are the theories that we have. Now, once you have a theory hand it, uh, in hand, it may be a very bad theory, but it gives you a line of action. So when a group of people adopt a theory, uh, they don't normally look at whether the theory is true or not. What they look at is how this theory protects their interests. And if the theory is good for them in the sense that taking actions, policy actions based on this theory will help their, their group, uh, will, will strengthen the group, then they go for this theory and they say, this is the correct theory which explains what's happening around us and therefore we must act in such and such a way. Other groups have their own theories. So, but, but now what happens uh, in history as a result of this is a consequence of this battle between different kinds of theories. To give, very, give, to give a very concrete and specific example, uh, this is discussed by Atif Mia and Amir Sufi in their book called uh, The House of Debt. They say that when the financial crisis occurred, there were two competing theories about 
why it happened and what was necessary to do to save the system. One theory which they offer is that it happened due to excessive household debt. And so the solution to the problem was to uh, give emergency loans to all house households with mortgages who had uh, who, who could not pay their mortgages. The other loan was that this was uh, the problem was the collapse of the financial system and the liquidity crunch that would result. And this asked for bailing out the financial system. If instead of bailing out the financial system, which had caused this crisis, the mortgages had been bailed out, the, the amount of bailout required would have been substantially less in the billions instead of in the trillions. And also the Great Recession, which followed, would have been averted. But this theory was not adopted because it did not favor the interests of the rich. And so what happened in history was that there was this battle of two theories. And the theory which won was not the right theory. But the theory which won was the one which was used in uh, conducting policy. And therefore, that theory prevailed and it shaped the policy response. We try to understand history, we try to shape history by the way of theories. Our theories then shape history, and history shapes the theories. So this is the what I call entanglement. Okay, good. Um, okay, so my uh, I'm, a final question before my original final question is is the following. There, there's the idea that you know government is bad, anti-government that the government can do nothing except for interfere with the free market. So the idea is that government, just get, get government out of our way. You know, Reagan government is the problem. You know, uh, the problem is more government. You know, we are the problem. We're going to, I'm here, I'm president to get them out of your way. Um, so the idea is that the, that the market is inherently a bad thing. But the reality is that those on top do not think the government is a bad thing. They think it is a bad thing when it tries to help the people and that they want the government to be very powerful. They want it to be powerful for them. And also, Polanyi points this out, that a self-regulating market actually requires more government because it is necessary to suppress those who express displeasure with being so badly exploited by the market so that a self-regulating market actually requires more government in order to suppress the uprising of those who suffer because of the self-regulating market. So, Absolutely. I think this is a, a brilliant insight of uh, Polanyi and it can be verified by the experience of Chile where uh, Milton Friedman himself went to advise the General Pinochet and basically um, the free market was inflicted a massive amount of damage to a massive portion of the population. And there was no way that the unrest could have been managed except by really brutal and ruthless dictatorial policies. So basically, the market unrest creates uh, damages society and somehow or the other, basically capitalism is about managing the unrest that will be created by the free market or the unregulated market. Uh, and um, uh, in the USA, a uh, rather different route has been taken to manage the unrest. 
One is to divorce people from history so they don't realize what is happening to them uh, and the historical process. The other is to divorce people from each other, break down the society. There is no such thing as society. You're all alone. You're all individuals. You should struggle on your own and compete with others instead of forming bonds, social bonds and creating groups which have the potential of toppling society. And um, in uh, providing you with entertainment to keep you busy so that you don't think about the bigger problems, that uh, the collective problems. You think about your own personal problems, but never about the society as a whole. And you are told that um, only dupes worry about others, only stupid people sacrifice their lives for greater causes. And so basically all forms of collective effort are um, discouraged and um, made extremely difficult. Can you talk about um, that anti-government, the, 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 the you know, anti-government sentiment is enormous. And mm-hmm. in, in my speculation that those who benefit from anti-government sentiment are those who cause the government to needlessly and purposefully act terribly, meaning the rich are sabotaging the government, which causes people to feel anti-government sentiment that they can't do anything right. And so they run to those who sabotage the government. They run to the rich. They run to the private market. You know, let's have more free market, but they're the ones behind the scenes sabotaging the government. Uh, Absolutely. I think they're no longer behind the scenes. The government is in the pockets of the multimillionaire corporations and most of the congressmen are millionaires themselves. And democracy, the concept of democracy is just uh, such a, uh, open sham that it's it's a joke. It's really pathetic. On any movement, on any on any point where the majority sentiment is against that of the corporations, the majority will lose, and the corporations will win. And so, um, the the idea of the evil government is only is, is very very selectively uh, applied the government is not evil when it provides a trillion dollar bailout to the corporations but it will become evil if it provides a billion dollar bailout to the mortgagers so the government is not supposed to help the people it's only supposed to help the wealthy so this is just very very crude propaganda uh, but uh, seems to be sufficient but okay, so the part that really confuses me is that average people buy into this. And what I mean by that is there is a huge element of protecting privilege. And like for example, Biden. You know, we can't we can't afford four more years of Trump, so we have to vote for Biden. Okay, great. Now we have Biden. Now what? The only advantages that I see is that we have, you know, we don't have stupid tweets at three AM. <laughs> and and it's it's you know, there I, I see people as protecting privilege that those who wanted Biden are now not speaking out against Biden because they're they're stable enough. And, you know, in a way, it's kind of like, you know, how dare you? You know, you're, we're ignoring those at the bottom. But in another sense, it's that 
that is what's required. This system requires hurting this system requires hurting others in order to genuinely do what's best for yourself. You it is impossible to to do what is genuinely best for you and your family without hurting others. And I actually am kind of gaining a little bit of sympathy for those who protect our privilege because I think that that is kind of that that's their way of doing it. And, and, you know, that it's impossible for, to help the poor without hurting me, which is the taxpayer myth. You know, I say, I want to help the poor, but really I kind of don't want to help the poor because that would hurt me. You know, they falsely believe that. So can you, can you address that same point of anti-government that it is reinforced by average people, even though it's so blatantly obvious? Yes, that's right. Basically, a lot of illusions have to be manufactured, and and uh, people have uh, Marx said this that the capitalism exploits laborers not by force, but by making the laborers believe that their own exploitation is a necessary part of the system, and is essential to give, and that gives the best possible results. So basically, brainwashing people into thinking that. Uh, whatever is happening to them is the best possible and that they're living in the great society and the America, the beautiful, all of these illusions are necessary to allow this extremely ugly system to survive. And so the capitalists have become really experts at creating this matrix-type illusion which keeps the people... Uh, fed on fantasies while the reality is starkly different. Uh, the, the particular myths be in use, like the government is bad or the government is good, these don't really matter. But the illusion of democracy and uh, Biden versus Trump, etc., Tweedledum versus Tweedledee. Tweedledum versus all... Tweedledumber. <laughs> Dumber, yes. That's, That's uh... Credit to Robin Williams for that. <laughs> I see. That's good. I haven't heard that before. But that's um, that's essential uh, part of the strategy that the people are deluded into think that we are voting. So we are actually we are actually making the choices when they actually don't have any choices. It's um, heads you lose and tails I win. That's the kind of choice that people are being offered. But they're happy to flip the coin anyway. They think that they have a choice when they really don't. And so this this illusion is an important part of keeping the people pacified and happy with this uh, system. Yeah, and and it's uh, what is most upsetting with related to those you know those average people who basically defend Biden, but then but then when he's in office, they don't question anything that he does or doesn't do, like with climate change and whatever. Um, is that you know they have they provide healthcare for all is very important to them, and they have elected a really really nice personally nice congressman who his primary thing was you know healthcare for all, and now it's. Now it's four years after he first said healthcare for all in his campaign, and now he's worried about inflation for healthcare for all. And yet these people mm-hmm. still love this guy. And I see this as a manifestation of that. Um, uh, okay, let's go to my final original question, and that is we can always change our path, but on the path that we are on, uh, it's pretty bad. And I think it's, and I, I've heard you say, 
in one of your Polanyi lectures in like, you know, 2050, are we going to be here at all? <laughs> and, yes. or at least, you know, those of us that are not the oligarchs, are we going to be here at all? And um, it has been something that I've been really thinking about is how to be a parent to, I have a, a 12 and 15 year old boys. And I was brought up of don't question. Um, I remember asking about a walking bridge. Well, what if it falls or whatever, you know, and, and I was told that walking bridge will never fall because it was designed by people who would never allow it to fall. I remember being in a car with, we went to a lumber yard and there was a huge piece of lumber right next to my head in the car. And I was worried and I said something and, and I, I was told we, I promise you that I will not get into an accident. And it's just like, you know, don't question things. Don't worry your pretty little head, basically shut up and take what you can get and keep your head down and I don't want that for my boys. I want I want them to be kids, but I want to balance. I want to balance allowing them to be kids, but knowing that they're essentially walking into a buzzsaw. And and you know, the second half of their lives, I think it I think as best as I understand, is going to be filled with violence and unprecedented instability. So I would like to ask you, number one, am I correct or how, you know, I mean, correct, you know, we, we, we can't say for sure, but given our current path, how realistic is my speculation of what we're, what we should be anticipating in the next, whatever, 20, 30 years. And then after that, I would like to ask you of what would you say as a parent to 12 and 15 year old boys to give them a realistic sense of what to expect without you know, destroying their childhood, basically, of, you know, scaring them out of a childhood. Yes. Well, I think that if you look at the new evolutionary theory, you find that this idea of survival of the fittest has been radically modified. Basically, in harsh environments, it takes a lot of cooperation to succeed. And uh, this idea... Uh, there were some very interesting experiments. Uh, I think there's somebody called Ed Wilson, or who is uh, the leading uh, new Darwinian. Ian. And basically, so if we are facing a harsh environment, which is going to happen, then if you want to survive, it's not going to be each man for himself. That doesn't work in a harsh environment. In a harsh environment, it takes a lot of cooperation to survive. So... Uh, exactly the opposite strategy is needed. How do we build teams? How do we build friends? How do we socialize? This is what uh, the skill that needs to be taught. But of course, if you I mean, if you take theoretical game theory, then you find that people who uh, yani you have to have both um, the ability to cooperate and the ability to punish defections from cooperative behavior. These two are essential to building up a group. You can't be all nice, nice, uh, uh, turn the other cheek all the time. Uh, But you should presume that other people are nice and cooperative until you are betrayed. And when you are betrayed, then you should punish severely the betrayers. And that uh, creates uh, social cohesion. And that's how societies work. I mean, if somebody does something that is antisocial, he can be ostracized and that's the uh, removed from the society. And so in terms of teaching children to survive in harsh environments, the thing is not to teach them 
to be selfish and, and greedy and look out for their interests against that of others. The teaching that our children need is how to work together in groups to, uh, groups to achieve uh, collective goals. Is that... Um. I mean that that makes sense, but but I mean no no that makes perfect sense. But I'm actually trying to, I I I don't know maybe maybe you're, maybe, I don't know maybe you just don't want to address that particular side of it. But yes, that is. I don't know. I don't know. I I I kind of want to basically sit my kids down and say. I mean, well, let me ask you first before aside from the kid thing. Is my assessment reasonable that, you know, oh, absolutely. I think whatever. we are um, on the brink of a huge catastrophe and certainly we are not acting in ways that will uh, help the chances of our survival. Jared Diamond, I think, has written a book about how civilizations go extinct because they simply respond to the threats which are well-known, obvious, and even the line of action required to counteract them are obvious, but there's just too much inertia, and that's what we see today. Uh, the timeline for counteracting disastrous climate change is rapidly running out, and uh, no action is being taken because people are just acting selfishly, not cooperatively. Because just, those on top require fossil fuels in order uh, yeah. to stay on top. Right. I mean, I mean, basically, it seems to me that those on top will die in, you know, in the way that we spoke about before with Jane Austen novels of becoming part of the many. Those on yeah. top will die if they don't continue pumping out fossil fuels as fast and as hard as they can. And conversely, for us, if they don't stop pumping out fossil fuels, then we are going to die. Yes. yes. I mean, it really is. I mean, it seems to be that simple. Yes. Um, um, okay. So yeah, you answered the question of basically how can they cope in that situation? Yes. My original question was what would you say to children to give them an idea of what to expect of basically the, the incredible hardships, if not, you know, way <laughs> extreme hardships, well, and, but say it in a way that doesn't doesn't scare them so should, badly that they don't continue living there, you know, having I a I don't think we should, um, we should just tell them that the future is highly uncertain, very bad things can happen, but not dwell on it. But instead, we should work on giving them skills required, like living close to the land, trying to grow food, and so on, I think, and, and uh, becoming self-sufficient. And those are the kind of skills that we need to develop. For the, and, and focusing on living lives of peace and harmony and, and living and in the moment, uh, realizing the value of every moment, every precious moment of life that is given to us, treasuring it, cherishing it, and so on. So those are the, the I mean, there are things you can do to make it positive. Just, just like the end of life training, if you look at people who are at their end of life, how we should deal with them and how we should be them if we are in that position. I think those are the lessons that we need to impart. We should be in peace and harmony with 
regardless of whether you're going to die tomorrow. Okay. All right. So that's fair. That that's um, how do you? I mean, I guess. I mean, whatever. I'm I'm kind of asking the impossible, but whatever. This these are my thoughts of you know these things that you're recommending of of being self-sufficient basically being self-sufficient but but in a in a in a communal sense in a, in a community right sense. right i think that is that is good that is useful yeah not being one household but a group of similarly minded people who work together to achieve self-sufficiency with the help of each other that would be the ideal stance to take at this point and find some place high in the mountains where you can set up a community. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, that, that kind of alludes to what I'm, what I'm thinking, which is, yeah, that's, I agree. Of course, of course, that is what you need to do, but that is in a society where that is, I mean, to say it's frowned upon is, you know, it's against greed, basically that, that's, that is right. standing against. So how do you, how do, I mean, basically in order to do what's best in order to do what's best, you have to stand against forces that are stopping you from trying to do exactly that. So that is, the, that is the challenge. That's right. How do I join the Amish? <laughs> That's the problem. I'm actually pretty close to the Amish. So <laughs> <laughs> yes. it's only like three-hour drive or four-hour drive right. away. Right. Um, I think that's um, what I'm recommending. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, all right. Well, uh, we, we went through everything that I wanted to go through. Is it is there anything that you would like to close out with? Are there any what, – what would you like to say before we stop? Huh. Well, there's a Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times. So I think that we are living in very interesting times. Okay. Profound ending. <laughs> um, thank you for talking with me. Thanks for joining us. Great. Thanks for having me. for this show is by Rectech. You can find Rectech on SoundCloud and Spotify at W-R-E-C-K underscore T-E-C-H. To record Activist MMT, I use the iOS phone app Tape a Call Plus for recording phone calls and Zencaster for internet-based recordings. My post-production workflow starts by editing on the iOS app AnyTune Pro Plus then transferring those timestamps to my Windows desktop. At that point, I crudely process the audio in Audacity and then implement the edits and do all of the final processing in the Reaper digital audio workstation. Activist MMT is hosted by Libsyn and the video teasers are created with the online Headliner app.
today's part two of my two-part conversation with Assad Zaman on the 2001 edition of Karl Polanyi's 1944 book, The Great Transformation. This is also the final part in a larger four-part series on the book. Parts one and two are with Jackson Winter. Jackson and I are two smart layperson MMTers trying to come to terms with the depth of what we just read and connecting it to our lives and MMT. Parts three and four are with Professor Zaman, who is a PhD economist with many lectures, papers, and posts on the topic, all of which you can find in the show notes to part one with Professor Zaman. Part one also contains a summary of the book. Even experienced MMTers can't know this stuff. You think you understand the foundation of our economy and society, but you don't. As described in The Great Transformation, there's another foundation beneath it. If you like what you hear, then I hope you might consider becoming a monthly patron of Activist MMT. Patrons have exclusive access to several full-length episodes right now. Patrons also get the opportunity to ask my academic guests questions, including my recent episode with Warren Mosler. They also support the development of my large and growing collection of Learn MMT resources and the course with Professor Zaman. To become a patron, you can start by going to patreon.com slash activist MMT. Every little bit helps a little bit, and it all adds up to a lot. Thanks. And now let's get right back to my conversation with Assad Zaman. Enjoy. Enjoy. 